Even experienced oncology healthcare professionals acknowledge how challenging it is to fully understand the cancer experience. And to better cross this barrier, I personally find it enlightening to chat with oncology healthcare professionals who themselves have been treated for the disease, as in a previous issue, when we visited Miss Diane Chapman, an oncology nurse and breast cancer survivor. For this issue of our series, I met with another patient nurse, Ms. Lillian Shockney, who has become knowledgeable in ways about this disease that are impossible to describe other than to listen to her. I was diagnosed 15 years ago at the age of 38. I was very fortunate to be a stage 1 but did need to have a mastectomy done. At that time, we weren't doing sentinel nodes, so I also had an axillary node dissection so modified radical mastectomy. For some other medical reasons, I wasn't a candidate at that time for breast reconstruction, so I wore breast prostheses, which I named Betty Boob. She became my bosom buddy that I took everywhere I went. And that was a very good groundbreaking way in talking with patients that when I would go in to see them, I would say, I'm here, but also a friend of mine by the name of Betty Boob, and I would explain my story. And I found that naming my breast prostheses was an effective way to neutralize the very scary discussion of cancer, that even my friends, my nursing friends would say, how's Betty doing, rather than saying, how are you dealing with your cancer? I was hormone receptor negative, and with the invasive disease being very small, they did not feel that I needed to have chemotherapy. Two years later, when I was having a routine mammogram, they found that I had multicentric disease once again, had core biopsies, and had four invasive ductal lesions in that side. So I underwent, yet again, another modified radical mastectomy. This time it was hormone receptor positive, and I think today they probably would not have given me hormonal therapy, but being young, in my 30s, very extensive family history of hormonally driven cancers in my family, they decided, let's go ahead and just leave no stone unturned and decided to do five years of tamoxifen at that time. Four years ago, so a decade after my second mastectomy, I finally at long last, with the power and science and improvement in care, became a candidate for breast reconstruction and had bilateral deep flap reconstruction done. So now my breast prostheses, Betty Boob and Bobby Sue, are happily resting on the chest of one of our underserved patients who has maintained their names, I might add. And I now have the girls, as my husband calls them. So it's not unusual in our breast center for me to have my clothes off with a newly diagnosed patient, particularly if she has been told that she needs to have a mastectomy because she has a large tumor, small breast, or multiple tumors in the breast, mandating that type of surgery that I will talk to her about various forms of reconstruction. Our plastic surgeon is available there also to see her at that same time. It's very common for me to do an unveiling and say, we're going to show you photographs, but I can also show you what the finished product looks like and how far out I am from that surgery. What was it like for you to take the tamoxifen? I guess you took it for five years? Yes. Tamoxifen was a rough road to hoe. I have to say I did not enjoy a single day of it. Hot flashes, night sweats crying jags and vaginal dryness became my life. I had a very supportive husband who remained focused on the purpose of the medicine. And quite frankly, he would have to remind me when I would really get frustrated with the side effects that he'd say, you visited this disease twice. Our mission is for you not to visit a third time. And that's what kept me focused. He even put post-its on the bathroom mirror that would have number three with a line drawn through it that we don't want to go down this road a third time. So we talked a lot about what can be done to control some of these side effects, and that is something that I spend a lot of time talking to patients about, of wearing layered cotton clothing in the wintertime, though you may think a down comforter is your best friend in bed. It actually isn't, that it's going to capture that heat and make hot flashes more intense and happen more often while you're trying to sleep to look at other things to relax you in the evening, some meditation tapes, perhaps some yoga as a way to unwind to help reduce the incidence also of insomnia that oftentimes accompanies hormonal therapy side effects. 
and various vaginal lubricants for control of vaginal dryness, that the solution shouldn't be abstinence. We really don't want patients to say, well, I have to totally change my lifestyle because of these medicines. We want to incorporate the medicine into their lifestyle, and if we need to add some things or subtract some things, change some things, then that's what we'll do. I don't think patients are very open about discussing, particularly sexual dysfunction side effects. That's something that I routinely bring up with a patient when I know that they are on some form of hormonal therapy of how are things going in the bedroom, and they'll candidly tell me, whereas they may not have told the physician. The physician said, how are you feeling? And she would have said, fine. Now, when you were started on the tamoxifen, were you having menstrual periods? Were you premenopausal? Yes. yes. And when I came off of it five years later, within two weeks, my menstrual periods returned just as regularly as clockwork. But during the time you were on the tamoxifen, you didn't have menstrual periods? No, not at all. And then when you stopped it, how long did the menstrual periods continue? Only two weeks after I took the last dose, and my menstrual periods returned and were just as regular as they were before. And that continues to the present time? or It continued until seven weeks ago when I underwent a total abdominal hysterectomy. I had abnormal findings on a biopsy, endometrial biopsy, and a CA-125 that was in the hundreds that triggered the necessity to look closer. And my mother had had uterine cancer at age 39. She now, God bless her, is 79. So they said, oop, time to get everything out down there. But until that day, seven weeks ago, at the age of 53, I was menstruating just as regularly as I was at the age of 25. Can you talk a little bit about the mindset of a patient who's encountering breast cancer for the first time, who's just been diagnosed? What are some of the dynamics that you observe in these patients and how that compares to your own experience going through this? I think that this disease remains the most feared disease of all women, and just hearing those words, you have breast cancer, is horrific. Anything that the woman hears after that is just blah, 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 blah. So I like to encourage physicians in breaking the news to a patient rather than saying you have breast cancer is the first sentence to instead be saying, well, I have news. It is a tumor, but it's very tiny and it is breast cancer that if we have good news to share, let's share that up front because once she hears those words, you have breast cancer, honestly, she won't hear anything after that. Her mind is already picturing if she's going to be laying in a coffin She's worrying about her children. She's wondering if the disease has already spread. Her brain has moved into overdrive, and she's not able to pay attention to the rest of the words being said. I also find that it's unpredictable what a woman will choose for her surgical option. I think that we assume, well, every woman that would want to would, in fact, choose to do lumpectomy, and she certainly wouldn't choose to do mastectomy. And ironically enough, that's not the case. So I ask the patient when I meet her that initial time, tell me about your relationship with your breasts. That tells me a whole lot about her personality and about her expectations of her treatment. How important is breast sensation to her? Did she remember the day that she was fitted for her first bra? Was that a good day or a bad day? If she were to rank her physical features best to worst, where does her breasts and her cleavage fall in that list. And it really will tell you a great deal about that patient's personality and what to anticipate as we go forward. I had a patient who was an excellent candidate for a lumpectomy, a tiny tumor, seven millimeter, upper outer quadrant, and she announced very firmly, I will only have bilateral mastectomies or I'm not having any treatment at all. The physician in hearing this said to me, I want you to talk with her because obviously she is confused about how high her risk is for recurrence. And she's assuming that the cancer spreads from one breast to another, which it doesn't. So go in and educate her about that. And I went in and I said, I understand that you had a preconceived plan before you came to see us today that you'd like to do bilateral mastectomy tell me how you reached that conclusion. What were the factors that went through your mind to make that decision? And she said, doesn't matter how small the tumor is. 
She said, it doesn't make any difference to me at all. I know that I could have a lumpectomy followed by radiation. I know that's equal to survival for mastectomy. So that told me this is a woman who has done her homework, that the assumption that the physician made was wrong. So I said, well, then tell me why do you want to embark on this? You have no family history, so I don't think you'd be thinking about a genetic problem. And she said, I was sexually abused as a child, and I have lived with that all my life. Now I finally have a legitimate reason to get rid of my breasts and make my brain mentally whole again, and I'm going to do it. That was a totally different reason than anybody ever would have expected as to why this woman wanted bilateral mastectomies. And we had her see one of our therapists to help her work through what ended up being that old baggage that we carry around with us when we were confronted with a life-threatening situation. I had another woman, tiny tumor, good candidate for lumpectomy. The physician said, you're a good candidate for lumpectomy. She burst into tears. And he said, I don't think she understands what I mean by a lumpectomy. Can you draw a picture, show her pictures, photographs and such? So I went in and I said, tell me what ran through your mind when he said lumpectomy, that he's just going to remove the tumor with a margin of tissue around it. And she said, I was born with spina bifida. I've had 17 operations. The only part of my body I've ever been proud of and pleased with are my breasts. Now I'm going to have a scar on one of them, and I'm going to see it every day when I get up and get in the shower. So I asked the surgeon, where will this scar be? And she was an upper outer quadrant for where her lesion was. He showed her where it would be, and she smiled and said, oh, I won't see it then when I look at myself in the mirror. And he said, no, probably not. And she said, okay, we need to do our homework in finding out what's going through these women's minds. And as I say, what is their relationship with their breast? Once we can reach an understanding with the patient as to how well do we believe she's going to do, is this an early diagnosis of this disease? And most of them are, thank heavens. Then we can get her over the fear of you are going to die. Once we get past that, now we can start putting together a treatment plan with her that we want to have be a bump in the road, not a derailment, not a dead end. And how can we put together a treatment plan that takes care of this disease with the goal that she doesn't revisit it again, but also lets her maintain her routine lifestyle of going to work, taking care of her kids, cooking her meals, going to church, being involved with Girl Scouts, so that she gives this disease as much time as it needs to get rid of it, but it doesn't deserve any more floor time out of her life than that. I want to track through some of the recent developments in clinical research in breast cancer and how they're affecting patient care on a daily level. You mentioned the fact that fortunately most women nowadays are being diagnosed through mammography, have early lesions. And I want to talk about, I guess, perhaps the most common clinical presentation of breast cancer today, which is the patient who has an ER-positive tumor, HER2 is negative, since most of them are HER2 negative, and then node negative. A typical scenario, the lower risk patient with an ER-positive tumor. There's been a lot of controversy and discussion about whether these women need chemotherapy or whether they can just receive hormonal therapy alone. I want to talk to you also about the hormonal therapy. But in terms of the chemotherapy issue, one of the things that's come about is the evolution of the Oncotype DX assay that's done on tumor tissue. Can you talk about how that gets integrated into the clinical management of these patients at Hopkins? I think the women that are in what we call a gray area, where we don't know what the true benefit is of chemotherapy, there's kind of a flip of the coin that the risks and benefits may actually be equal being able to have an additional prognostic test such as Oncotype DX has given us one more tool in helping to answer that question. And patients very much have embraced getting that additional information so that rather than saying to the patient, you decide if you want to do chemotherapy or not, which I think is a heck of a situation to place a patient in. So you're saying, I have no medical background. I don't want to choose. Please tell me what you would do that by doing the Oncotype DX test on their breast cancer cells, it gives us one more piece of information as to what is the probability that this is a breast cancer that would have a tendency to want to recur. And so if she has an elevated score, it makes her feel more comfortable in knowing 
I think I am doing the right thing then by embarking on doing chemotherapy. I think the tougher patient population are those that have very negative feelings about chemotherapy. They just see it as poison, not of benefit. And they'll say, my sentinel node was negative. Doesn't matter if I have a 2.5 centimeter tumor that's hormone receptor negative. I don't think I need anything because obviously the disease was only in my breast and wasn't elsewhere. And having them understand that we can't hang our hat 100% on the sentinel node, that that disease still has the capability of traveling if it so chose to do so, whether that be through lymphatics or through blood vessels. To what degree does she want to play Russian roulette? Some women are risk takers and they'll say, I'm going to take the risk and not do any further treatment. Other ones will say for a 1% benefit climbing up the survival curve, I'll do anything you will give me. So finding out up front, is she the type to want to do the minimum and not be a worry ward? Or is she the type that says, throw the kitchen sink at me because I want to feel confident 10 years from now, if the disease came back, I had done everything I could do, that I'm not going to feel guilty and say, what if, and that hindsight is 2020. We do know that women diagnosed, most of them do go through the natural grieving process, first shock of can't believe that it's happened to them, which I think is very common, and denial then that it's happened to them of can you have another doctor look at the pathology to make sure that really is cancer? Can you have somebody else also look at that mammogram and agree that's a speculated mass? And then start the phase of, well, let me get more information about this. They need to gather their support team, and we want them to gather that early on until they do reach a point of, I am accepting that I have this disease, and my mission is to be able to say I had the disease. And for some, that can take a day, a week. For others, they may never quite get there. You know, there still are, unfortunately, snake oil websites is what I call them out there that for fifty nine ninety five we can cure you of your breast cancer is what they say. And women in desperation will say, ah, here's the hidden secret as to how breast cancer can be cured. I don't have to have all these other medicines and such that they say I have to have. I'll drink this potion and cancel the rest of my appointments. And these are even well-educated women that do this. And that tells me that they are just in such a state of denial that we need to spend a lot more time with them and having them overcome reality and say, this is real and the snake oil isn't. We want to get you better, so work with us, not against us. Now, one of the options that women have available to them also is to participate in clinical research. And one of the major studies that's out there right now, in fact, is looking at these patients who have the node-negative ER-positive tumors, and specifically to study the patients who have the so-called intermediate risk on recurrence score of the Oncotype DX. And this is the Taylor X study that I know you all are participating in. And in that trial, the patients who have the low recurrence score just get hormonal therapy. They don't get chemotherapy. The patients who have the high recurrence score do get chemotherapy because we know those patients have tremendous benefit. But the patients in between and the intermediate score in this trial go through a randomization to either receive chemotherapy with their hormonal therapy or not. So basically the computer is going to decide whether or not they receive cytotoxic chemotherapy. What's it like trying to have a patient go on a study like that where you have such a controversial randomization? It's easy to get a patient to enroll in the Taylorex study, and if they fall in the low group or the high group, it's very easy. You're right, it's the intermediate group that they go, oh my gosh, and they realize that now they've lost control of being able to make the decision because it is the randomization, it is a flip of the coin, if you will. And they have in their mind which way they want the coin to flip. (laughs) Some will say, gee, I hope that I'm in the group that doesn't get the chemo. And others will say, gee, I hope I'm in the group that does get the chemo. It can result in some women choosing to withdraw from the clinical trial. We try to educate them as much as we possibly can up front, though, that this could be the situation. They could end up in this intermediate group and that we discourage women from pulling out that we really do want them to participate in this study so that 
for the next generation will have solid answers, we hope, as to who needs it, who doesn't need it, and why. We talked a little bit about the chemotherapy end of this. Let's talk a little bit about the hormonal therapy end. And basically, we know that most or almost all patients who have hormone receptor positive or estrogen receptor positive cancers are going to receive hormonal therapy. And you talked about your own experience as a premenopausal woman receiving tamoxifen. Can you talk a little bit about what you say to patients who are going to be starting out on an aromatase inhibitor? We know right now, in general, for postmenopausal women, that's the usual first hormonal therapy that's given. What do you say to patients who are going to begin that type of treatment? One of the things that I emphasize to patients that are going to be embarking on aromatase inhibitors, postmenopausal women, is that even though they're going to be seeing the medical oncologist less often now because they're at the end of their treatment, this may be the most important treatment that they've gotten through all of their course of stages of treatment. And that adherence to taking the medicine every day is terribly important. I think that hormonal therapy falls into the chronic disease management category We know that people that have heart disease don't regularly take their cardiac drugs, asthma, don't regularly take their respiratory medicines. Even though they seem to know they're important, we know from having done studies that noncompliance is an issue. When you add to that hormonal therapy causing side effects that are unpleasant, that's going to bump up the probability that the patient is going to say, oh, I think I'm going to skip today. I get about 200 emails a day to our Johns Hopkins Breast Center website. Approximately 25% of them relate to adherence to hormonal therapy of women saying, I haven't told my doctor because I don't want him to be mad at me, but I'm taking my medicine every other day in the hopes that I'll have half the side effects. But does that also mean that I'm getting half the benefit? But we don't know because we haven't done any studies of taking the medicine every other day. So I tell them that if you're dealing with side effects, speak up. Don't suffer in silence. There may very well be some other medications or alternative things that we can offer and work with the patient in order to reduce those side effects, have them be more tolerable so that she can stay on the medication as intended. If she's not comfortable talking with her physician about side effects, then hopefully she'll be open to talking to one of the nurses in the breast center about it, someone that she feels comfortable in being candid with that person. I also like to talk to the significant sweetie after the patient's been on hormonal therapy for about three months, whether that be her husband or partner, to see how is their relationship going. He or she may say, ah, her mood swings are driving me nuts, or we haven't had sex since she went on that pill. What is that pill? Because oftentimes when we give the prescription for the hormonal therapy, it's towards the end of their more intense time of seeing us regularly, and now we are going to see them for three to six months. That visit, you know, they usually come in by themselves. They don't have other family members with them. We need to take the time to educate whoever's living with her (laughs) what this drug is for to help us help her to adhere to taking it, as well as have that family member understand What are the side effects that he or she may be observing that are part of the game plan for this drug so that he or she can also speak up on behalf of the patient and say, we're both miserable because of her hot flashes at night in the bed and see what we can do to help alleviate some of those. I never tell a patient I'll make them go away, but usually if we can reduce them, then you can live with them. What do you think are the key problems that are affecting adherence specifically to long-term hormonal therapy of breast cancer? I think it's going to get harder for adherence, particularly when we're looking at patients potentially being on hormonal therapy maybe even 10 years. It's a challenge to do a five-year program, but if you're saying, well, you're going to have potentially side effects that will go on for even longer than that, then women start questioning Am I getting benefit for the entire length of time that I'm taking it? If I take it for three years, then how much reduction in recurrence did I get from taking it for that period of time? That They have foxhole religion at first, and I think we'll do whatever that we ask them to do. But as more time goes by, then they're like, well, I really don't know if I want to stay on this 
medicine. I think I'm going to be fine if I don't stay on this medicine. It also raises the question of how often should we be touching base with our patients on hormonal therapy? Usually the visits are spaced six months apart now. That's a long time for her to be having to make personal decisions about whether she's going to take the drug or not each day. Though we may not need to see her more often, it certainly would be beneficial to have a nurse touch base with her via phone and say, how are you doing on your medicines? Any side effects that you want to talk to me about or that I can help you with? Even finding out, do they have a prescription plan to cover the medicine? These medicines are expensive. We may not have done our homework in educating the patient about various programs that the pharmaceuticals offer to discount the drug if they don't have financial means. Any observations on the tolerability, sort of day-to-day quality of life that women experience with an aromatase inhibitor compared to tamoxifen? Joint pain is the number one thing I hear patients complain about and that it does affect their quality of life, their activities that they're doing day-to-day and with their family, picking up grandchildren in their arms, playing golf that they enjoyed, also concern about their bone health with risk of osteoporosis is something that's very much on a patient's mind taking an aromatase inhibitor. So the joint pain is the constant daily reminder. Combine that with, gee, I'm wondering if this bone pain is related to my bones getting more brittle, perhaps looking at their mother who had osteoporosis and seeing her in a nursing home with a broken hip and saying, is that my future? So making sure that we are addressing her bone health is something we should do right up front of bone density study. What's her bone health now? Does she need to go on medication with her aromatase inhibitor to offset that potential side effect of bone loss? What about the delayed use of aromatase inhibitors and specifically starting an aromatase inhibitor in a woman who's had tamoxifen in the past, who's menopausal, or occasionally you see people who never got hormonal therapy even though they have an ER-positive tumor? What kind of approach do you all take in sort of making that decision about starting up an aromatase inhibitor in a delayed fashion? Yeah, we always turn to the evidence-based medicine studies one of those studies being tamoxifen followed by letrozole, femara, is an option for most patients. What we discourage a great deal is the patient who says, I've been on Arimidex for four months and I don't like it. I'd like to switch to femara, and if I don't like it, then I'd like to go on aromacin. Kind of pill shopping for I'll take the one with the lesser side effects. You know, we don't know a whole lot, if much of anything, about the effect of jumping from one aromatase inhibitor to another over a period of just a few months. And I think that patients need to understand that it's better if they stay on what they're on and we figure out how to manage the side effects rather than doing this switch every couple months to another drug. I'm not sure that we really are doing good by them. Now, another innovation in the adjuvant setting that's come about just in the last couple of years has been the use of trastuzumab or Herceptin as adjuvant therapy. Of course, we had that around for a long time in metastatic disease, but as of the 2005 ASCO meeting, we found out that the recurrence rate was dramatically decreased by the use of trastuzumab. Can you talk about how you all approach the use of that agent, what you do in terms of cardiac monitoring, and how patients seem to do when they receive trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting? Yes, I've certainly seen the power of Herceptin in extending women's lives with metastatic disease, and women are very much embracing the opportunity to take it in the adjuvant setting, which I think is wonderful, and I support our physicians in offering it and the patients and saying, yes, I want to do it. It is important that we can never make an assumption that because she's young, for example, that she's got a good heart. She may have been on an anthracycline already that may have taken a toll on her, and we aren't aware of that yet until we do a MUGA to see what is her EF level and talk with her about the pros and cons of taking it, that it does carry a small but real risk of causing cardiac toxicity. So a MUGA is done prior to beginning, and then every three months we're looking at what her cardiac values are again. If her levels do rise, we may give her a drug holiday for a bit 
but not necessarily saying we're going to take you off and leave you off forever. Monitoring her again to see if her cardiac function improves as to whether she would be a candidate to be able to return to taking this medication. I think one of the challenges for patients, particularly those that are on it weekly, is the impact it can have on their life schedule because this is a medication that needs to be given intravenously. So it isn't a pill that they're going to be taking at home. Incorporating that into their activities of daily living, whether it be Friday afternoon, leaving work early, or however that that's going to work out for her schedule. But she really needs to understand that she's investing probably four to five hours out of her week to this type of medication administration. I also like to make it very clear to patients to have an understanding that targeted therapy, biologic therapy, is different than chemotherapy. Even showing them drawings of this is the first time that we've gotten away from what Dr. Susan Love has always said was the poison-slash-burn method of treatment and are finally biologically treating these cells, which I think is very exciting. Patients are enthused to see that we've reached that point and that they are part of that discovery and are reaping the benefits of that discovery with the hopes that more treatments like this, which certainly have become developed, and I think even more will after this now, will be in the future for the next generation. Let's talk a little bit about metastatic disease. And to begin, maybe you can reflect a little bit about the psychosocial issues involved in that first visit when a woman confronts metastatic breast cancer. Now, most of the time, these women have been diagnosed previously with primary breast cancer. A lot of them have received adjuvant therapy with chemotherapy, maybe endocrine therapy, maybe trastuzumab, and now the tumor has come back in spite of those adjuvant therapies. What's the usual mood in the exam room when this is discussed, and how do you see patients sort of coping with this? Patients feel very frightened, oftentimes saying, I skated through the first time. I'm not sure that I'm going to get through this next time. I'm scared this is going to take my life this time. If it's a new recurrence, a local recurrence, it's much easier to swallow because we're usually looking at surgical management. If they had a lumpectomy with radiation, now we're looking at mastectomy with reconstruction. But if we're looking at this disease having returned to a distant site and we're dealing with metastatic disease, the look on her face is one of devastation. Usually these women have previously, from having been down this journey with breast cancer, have a pretty good grasp as to what it means when it goes on to another organ and that we aren't dealing anymore with the ability to use the word cure, that we're looking at the word control. I try to give an analogy to patients of diabetes, which is a very familiar chronic disease. If a brittle diabetic didn't take their insulin every day, after three to four days, they would be dead. And we don't always realize that. So I said, so we're going to have you on some type of medication long-term that you'll always be taking something for the purpose of getting this disease in control and keeping it in control for as long as is possible, never saying we'll make it go away because we can't, and we know that. Those are the miracle patients, and they're few and far between when we see total clinical response and pathologic response, particularly to distant disease, providing them and their family support so that they have a grasp of how much time are we talking that they may have ahead. Some women come in and the disease has just ravished their body very quickly, and then we're looking at a much faster track and getting hospice involved. Even if we're looking at a 6- to 12-month time frame, still getting hospice involved early on I think is very valuable for the patient and for the family. For women that have a local spot, perhaps it's bone that can be radiated and hopefully get it into control. Having her paired up with one of our survivor volunteers who also is dealing with stage 4 disease and is fairly stable with her stage 4 disease is very helpful. You know, that camaraderie of being able to spend time in private with someone else who really is in your body, is living what you're living 
I think is awfully important. The biggest challenge I believe that we have today is the timing of when do we say, let's stop aggressive treatment and let's switch to palliative care. That is a tough, tough, tough call. And I think it's painful for the physician. It's painful for the nurse. It's very painful for the patient. Family members may be pleading with you, please don't do this, as if we're punishing somebody. And it really is just a matter of being realistic and wanting to make sure that the remainder of her life is good quality and not spent in treatment that isn't working. We're not doing her any favors by giving her more and more and more chemotherapy that is just making her sick and not benefiting her in respect to getting this disease in control to give her not only quality of life, but a longer life. How do you feel yourself as a healthcare professional and as a breast cancer survivor dealing with these kinds of situations? It must be difficult sort of not to take it home. It can be very challenging for me. I am the type of nurse I get directly involved with my patients. I know these patients well. I don't keep a distant arm's length away. I hug my patients. They have my home number. So I feel very intimately involved with that patient and with her family. And when we lose someone, I feel that sense of loss. Some of the things I feel I can constructively do for her that I think also helps me and makes me feel better that I actually am able to provide her a level of nursing care that I can come away saying I feel proud of what I did for her today is to make sure that hospice is involved because I think that the services and programs they offer are wonderful. I also encourage her, and I will talk with her spouse or her mom, whoever is closest to her and going to be taking care of her at home or with her at the bedside, to visit a card store, go to your Hallmark store, your Carlton card store, whatever's your neighborhood store that you frequent. Ask to see the manager. Tell the manager the situation of the patient. So if it's the, let's say it's the mother of the patient will go, and she would say, my daughter's dying of stage 4 breast cancer. They don't anticipate her surviving more than a few weeks. I am here today because I want to purchase cards for her children who are my grandchildren, birthday cards up through the age of 21, high school graduation, college graduation, any holidays that are significant that they celebrate, the wedding of this child, the first birth of that child's baby in the future. I say that you've got to get the manager because graduation cards are only out in June. This might be October. And so the manager's got to go back into that storage room and dig out these cards that are in storage and then have the patient write one sentence in each of those cards for those children for that significant date for her daughter's 16th birthday and her child may be 10 years old right now. What does she want to say to that child on that day? Because by doing that, she's still right there with her instilling her hopes and values in her children after she has passed away. Patients value this a great deal Husbands, if they're the ones going to the card store, men are very task-oriented. They embrace the concept of doing this and readily go and do it. Many of these card store managers will actually give you the cards when they hear the story as to why you need them. And I tell them to have her write her note in them, sign them, date them, and put the child's name on them, and then put them in a lockbox. Don't keep them in your house. You could have a flood, a fire, who knows what. These cannot be replaced. Better to invest $25 in a lockbox at the bank. And when that next holiday comes or birthday comes or significant graduation, whatever the event is, then you go to that lockbox, take out that card, and though she is gone, she's right there with that child. Let's talk about, again, some of the research advances that are impacting patients being treated with metastatic disease. And certainly one that there's a lot of discussion about is the use of bevacizumab or Avastin, which we've been using now for a while in colon cancer, and now we're starting to use it in lung and breast cancer. What do you say to patients who are about to begin Avastin? We are using Avastin, and we are seeing benefits to patients that have locally advanced disease and metastatic disease in extending their time and having that 
time be, I think, fairly good quality of life. It also is a drug that seems to be a bit easier for patients to tolerate than some of the more traditional chemotherapy agents as well. It's important to educate the patient what it is because it's getting confused, particularly on the Internet, is getting confused with Avista because they sound a little similar, Avastin and Avista. So some people are thinking it's a hormone therapy, and, of course, that's not its mission in taking it. One of the unusual things about bevacizumab or Avastin is that some patients develop hypertension. What's been your experience with that? I'd have to say we haven't seen a lot of incidents of hypertension among patients that I'm thinking about the patients that are currently on it that I personally know. I mean, patients are closely monitored during any of these therapy regimens, but I haven't seen that be a major issue. One of the things also about Avastin is that right now, and this happens a lot of times with clinical research and, you know, when the trials are still going on, What's been seen with metastatic breast cancer has been a prolongation of progression-free survival at this point without clearly being able to demonstrate whether it's going to affect survival in metastatic disease. Obviously, hopefully, if the patient has symptoms, they're going to get better also while the response is occurring. How much of an advantage is it to be able to continue with a therapy without having to switch? In other words, to extend the progression-free survival from a quality of life point of view. I think that's very important for the patient, and a patient gets comfortable with the drug. I think the same thing happens with Herceptin. There are patients that, you know, have said, I know I'm to be on it a year. I don't want to ever come off of it because I think it's keeping me well. So they feel comfortable with it. The same with Avastin. If they feel comfortable with it, then they want to stay on it for as long as they can. I have a pet peeve that I know in a lot of medical literature, and I've heard this said by physicians in many settings, because I do a lot of traveling and visit other breast centers to do presentations. When I hear a physician say, the patient failed hormonal therapy, or the patient failed Avastin, and it's like, the patient didn't fail, it failed her, and that we really have to be careful in how we phrase that, particularly if you're saying it to the patient of, well, you failed hormonal therapy, as if she had some control over this. The only way she had control is if she didn't take it. But otherwise, if she's been a compliant patient saying that she failed a certain drug regimen, we've got to turn those words around that it failed her or that it didn't reap the benefit that we had hoped that it would. So let's move on to another treatment regimen and see if this one will be better. I think that's a really good point. Another issue about Avastin is the fact that generally, certainly in breast cancer, when it's given, it's given with chemotherapy and seems to in some way facilitate the delivery of chemotherapy to the breast cancer cells. And I guess the most well-studied regimen is a combination of bevacizumab and paclitaxel or taxol. But we now have another sort of version of paclitaxel out there, the NAB-paclitaxel or a Braxane formulation. One of the things about the NAB-paclitaxel is the fact that it is a very costly agent. I guess we're going to have to see how that gets played out in the future. But in addition to the fact that it looks like maybe it's going to have a little more activity than regular paclitaxel, there are two other advantages that have been purported or have been discussed with this agent. One is the fact that pre-medications are not required, and the other is that the infusion time is shorter. Can you talk a little bit from a quality of life point of view in terms of how much of an advantage these two things do you think pose to patients? Well, whatever we can do to have patients not sitting in a chemotherapy administration chair and have them out and about doing what they want to be doing is better, just like being able to go from an intravenous administration of something to a pill that they can take themselves is going to improve their quality of life because they're not going to be walking through the cancer center doorway every X number of days that they can get on with what they are here on earth to be doing. So that's a good thing of making the delivery of medications more efficient with lesser side effects that they also have to deal with or have to be monitored for is the direction that we want to see more and more pharmaceuticals go. Do you see many problems associated with the decadron? People have talked about, you know, sort of agitation, hyperactivity, problems sleeping. How often do you see that? Insomnia has been, I think, one of the things that patients have commented about the most. We encourage women to do 
yoga and biofeedback. Also, taking a sleep agent is not unusual to recommend. Preparing their family for her being hyper, because this changes her personality a bit. She may be talking as fast as an auctioneer and really wound up. And if the family doesn't know that it's because of the medications that she's taking, they may make assumptions that it's something else going on. So letting them know, you know, that she's on Decadron, she's on steroids, this is why, and it may create some changes in her mood and her behavior in her ability to sleep, her agitatedness, anxiousness, and even how happy or sad she is that... We see this a lot with patients with brain meds where we're giving them big doses while we're radiating them and then tapering them off. And the family says, gee, you know, she was talking a mile a minute, and now she's talking in slow motion, and she seems more forgetful. What's going on? What's happened? For them to understand the combination of the effect of the radiation with coming off of the steroids. And I think people need to be told that in advance rather than after the fact what to expect rather than that's what happened. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with fulvestrant or Fazlodex? We are regularly using it. The patients that are taking it may have already have been, you know, on other medications similar to it beforehand. I can't say that I've seen patients that have complained about side effects with it. We're following them in the outpatient center, seeing them at routine intervals while they are receiving it. But can't say from my experience that it's been an issue or been a problem. A lot of people consider that fulvestrin is kind of an equivalent option to the oral medications such as the aromatase inhibitors and tamoxifen in terms of side effects and as well as efficacy. Do you find that there are some patients who actually prefer intramuscular injections or most of them prefer the pill? I would not say that most of them prefer this, no. Mm-mm. I would not. Maybe that the physician isn't bringing it up as an option, though. That mm-hmm. also can do think, be. Do you think that there are patients out there who actually would prefer to have an injection compared to a pill? Yes, I do. If you match it up with birth control, that there are patients that will say, I'd rather wear a patch that will last a month, or I'd rather get a shot that will last three months and not be dealing with something that's every day. Anything you want to add to anything you said today? One of the things that we haven't talked about is body image. Breast cancer surgery alters a woman's silhouette, how she interprets her new silhouette, I think very much influences her psychological well-being in the future. So preparing her for her surgery, particularly if she's undergoing mastectomy, and if it's mastectomy without reconstruction, which I think is one of the tougher ones, for altering body image. I had a patient this morning in my office who was seeing her incision for the first time. She was four days post-op from a mastectomy without reconstruction. And she was very frightened when the bandages were coming off. And I told her, we're going to look together. I had her husband there. I had already had her husband see photographs privately beforehand because you don't want a husband to show an expression on his face of, oh my God, what's that? Just because he's seeing something unfamiliar, she may interpret that as, oh my gosh, she thinks I look terrible. So having him have a heads up as to what to expect. And having her look down, and I say, look, when you look down, I don't see that your breast is gone. I see that the cancer is gone. Your glass is half full, your glass is not half empty, and you have been transformed This was transformation surgery to transform you from a breast cancer victim into a breast cancer survivor. So you've exchanged your breast for another chance of life and been carried way up the survival curve by doing this surgery, and I'm very proud of you. So that we put a positive spin on this and not have her turn into Eeyore, which could certainly happen. I also think preparing her for hair loss when she's undergoing chemotherapy and always reminding her, your hair is going to come back. It's not like the breast is gone and it won't be back. Your hair will return. And let's talk about what hairstyle you may want to have that may be new and different when it comes back in. Let's talk about what kind of wig you want to wear. Maybe you want to have a different hair color. You've always wanted to be a blonde. Here's the opportunity to be a blonde. Or you've always wanted to see what you look like with short hair or long hair. This is a chance to do that. 
And I tell patients, when we know there's a beginning and an end to something, like a woman in labor, she knows that baby eventually is going to come out. She can endure anything. And that treatment such as this, when we know it has a beginning and an end, we can roll up her sleeves and take it on and do just about anything. Encouraging her family members to tell her how beautiful she is, to remind her that it's not how you look outside, it's how you express yourself from the inside that is her beauty and that that will be with her forever. So I want to make sure that we are helping her learn to cope with her new self-image and embracing that new self-image, not seeing herself as less feminine, less sexual, less of a woman because of the diagnosis and treatment of this disease. There have been surveys done of people diagnosed with cancer and breast cancer in which many of these patients have said that their fundamental view of their own life has changed because of the experience. Did you find that that happened to you, and do you find that other people tell you that that happens to them? Yes. I was interviewed a few years ago, and the reporter said to me, I guess if you could rewind the videotape of your life, you would definitely want to erase the diagnoses of breast cancer, not just once but twice. And I said, no, I would not. I wouldn't erase anything because it is a part of me. First, I'm a believer in fate. Things happen for a reason, whether we realize them or ever understand them or not. And when I look back at it, I can identify all of the pearls that came out of my diagnoses. My marriage was strong. It's stronger now than it's ever been. I didn't think that was possible. I thought it's as strong as it could be. Nope, it reached a whole new level that I didn't know existed. And it was because of my husband's fear of losing me. It made me a more open person. I used to be the type where if I had an opinion about something, I may keep it to myself. I have to tell you, I don't keep it to myself anymore. What's on my mind comes out of my mouth that I'm going to speak up. I chose to transfer from my previous nursing position into the breast center after my second diagnosis for the sole purpose of devoting my time and energy personally and professionally to women that end up wearing my bra in the future. That wouldn't obviously have ever come to be had I not been diagnosed. I used to take the expression stop and smell the roses for granted. I don't anymore. When the sun sets, I want to see it. I want to run outside and look at it, even if it's for two minutes, because I now realize we don't know what tomorrow holds for us. So I believe that myself and many women diagnosed and treated with this disease value each day in a way that the everyday population doesn't because they haven't been in touch with their mortality. I hope that it has made me a better mother. I think that women diagnosed that have young children, their children are closely observing their mother and how she is dealing with this huge crisis. She is setting an example for them. Whether she is aware of it in the midst of her terror or not, they are watching her every move and how she is dealing with this. My daughter was interviewed a few years ago. She now is 27. When she was 22, she was interviewed on a radio station live. And one of the questions that they asked, which she wasn't anticipating, and goodness knows when I heard it on the radio, I wasn't anticipating her being asked, was, are you frightened of getting this disease since your mother was diagnosed in her 30s, has had it twice, obviously that places you at higher risk for also getting it. And she said... I used to worry about it. I used to think about it quite a bit. I think that I probably will end up getting breast cancer at some point in time, but I'm not frightened of it. I've read up about it. My mother's taught me a lot about it, but the most important thing that she taught me is how to beat it, and she demonstrated it to me twice to make sure I learned it. Hmm. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> so we, Out of the mouths of babes. Yeah, huh? we really don't realize, I think, when we're going through a crisis, the impact we have and the impression we have on our children and that these are learning lessons for them and can be, quite frankly, wonderful learning lessons if we just stop and realize, you know, she is watching my every move as to how I'm dealing with this.